This is Tom Donnelly with Akata. Our podcast, Profiles in Digital Leadership, Fraud versus Friction, is a series of interviews with e-commerce, fintech, law enforcement, and global thought leaders. We will focus on fraud prevention and customer experience best practices that everyone should know about. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast series. I'm excited to have Leisha Bell as our guest today. Leisha has experience in e-commerce, financial services, and payments. We met three or four years ago while she was working with a fraud prevention company and have stayed connected ever since. I've been very excited to see her career and her role as an advocate in the industry grow. So Leisha, welcome, and let's get started today. You've seen fraud in lots of different parts of the ecosystem. What did you like best about battling those types of fraud in the various places that you've worked? Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I love how we stay connected over all this time. So yeah, I've been in this industry for a little while now, and it's always exciting to see how things shape and evolve. So early in my career, my first product was launching bill pay. And people were simply scared to not send checks in the mail. Like it was a behavior that he had to change. And then people were scared about people hijacking the mail and then taking credit cards out of the mail that people sent. And then we evolved to like digital cards and you didn't have to get credit cards in the mail. You could get them in the phone. So I think it's pretty interesting to watch the landscape change on like consumer behaviors, consumer fraud patterns. And then later, when I went to retail e-commerce, looking at the impact on the merchant side. So then you have the automation, the bots, the taking over consumer identities and looking on how merchants actually protect and safeguard themselves and their customers. And then you have now in COVID a really highly digital economy that's become more digital over the past six to seven months and kind of the increase in those trends that we're seeing on how, one, we need to really educate and enlighten our consumers to protect themselves and how more sophisticated fraud is getting and the more people that want to play in this space. Like it's always going to be here. You know, it's just understanding who's your enemy now and mitigating those practices. Really great, really great. And it's been exciting to see you work in all these different parts of the industry. Leisha, as you know, I'm based in Singapore now. Your comment about all these consumers coming online, we literally in Asia Pacific, we've added 40 million people, new digital users, (laughs) the equivalent of the metro area for Tokyo, right? Mm -hmm. So the potential for these new consumers to have their identity stolen, to have criminal rings utilize their identities and build synthetic identities to attack e-com and fintech companies is massive, right? How much exposure have you had to global fraud trends? Yeah, there was a point where I worked at a fraud startup that was headquartered in the EU. And you see how rapid things like anti-money laundering and how essentially all fraud is global now. (laughs) You know, it's not just simply a localized situation. You know, then we're trying to block IPs from certain countries and we're trying to look at who, what and where. And you see that it's everywhere, it's mass. And so I think it's kind of hard when I was working Tel Aviv versus working in companies in San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of the same stuff, you know? (laughs) 
going around. So I'm not sure that it's unique. There are definitely some unique challenges, but the access is everywhere to, to disrupt and find something and break it or to hack into it. Definitely. And did you find it was an advantage or a disadvantage that you had a U.S.-based perspective and, a, and generally were working from the U.S. when battling those global fraud trends? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some advantages or disadvantages. You know, the U.S. is highly technical, highly savvy in that area. But the way that independent countries operate, particularly in financial systems, is very different based on how they use credit versus debit. And some people still cash or, you know, the currency of their region and how they interface with the banks and the regulation, you know, that's involved in that. That makes it pretty complicated to see. I think in a kind of open society, everyone, there's either more controls where there's kind of some regulatory process and agencies governing that. And there's some places where there's no governance. And so I think that's kind of a big, interesting dynamic when you look at how this plays out globally and you see distrust in, in certain governments versus others. You know, like who's the fraudulent ones? Who can we trust? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? It kind of becomes blurry based on which operating set of principles you're working from. Yeah, for sure. And we all have stories. If we've been in the fraud prevention industry for a decade or more, right? <laughs> First time I became friends with a gentleman living in Seattle, but was born in Nigeria, I'm like, what is the deal with your fellow country people? And why have they become such great scammers? And it's a long story, right? And right. how convincing stories can be. So social engineering certainly has not gone away. And Alicia, I think yeah. you pointing out that fraud is truly a global game right yeah. now is right. really important. So that leads me to another question for you. So how has fraud prevention evolved? in your experience? Let's focus uh, yeah. maybe on the last decade or so. Tools have changed, approaches have changed. What are your observations in that regard? Yeah. So I think you had this perspective that it was the merchant or the company problem to solve with. So the big banks had to essentially protect their consumers. And then you had this shift where the consumers are like, actually, I'm demanding protections. And I want to be protected. So you have this place where 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, people weren't paying fraud vendors for tools. You know, they're like, oh, we can figure it out ourselves. And then they realize that, oh, we need support. And there's so many different types of fraud that we need an arsenal of tools to actually help us attack this problem. And our consumers aren't just trusting us. Consumers are equipping themselves. They're making sure they're using biometric. They're making sure their passwords are up to date or they're being more smarter about where they store information as well. So you kind of have this push on both sides of the equation and demanding more protections. And it's not just somebody else's responsibility. I think everybody has now realized we collectively have a responsibility to protect ourselves and our identities. What about the power of machine learning? We hear about it all the time, and clearly yeah. we've seen examples. I mean, simple everyday examples are the possible selections on Amazon Prime or mm. <laughs> movies on Netflix, right? They're, right? they're looking at our behavior, they're understanding what's available, and they're making suggestions, right? And fraud prevention, there's a lot of hype about machine learning. What has been your practical experience with machine learning as a tool for fraud prevention? And where do you think there's still room for improvement? Yeah. So, I mean, machine learning is great. And I think if you're 
in this industry, you have to say machine learning or AI or people will think you're crazy, right? Because it, it really builds automation for things that were not automated before, were like independent scripts, and it simply allows you to attack at scale. I mean, that's the beauty of these algorithms. However, they're still programmed by regular people who are flawed, may think that this is the pattern that we're trying to attack, and like, oh no, that wasn't it, or ooh, that was wrong, or, you know, there's flaws in it, right? And so we really have to build and keep building on these algorithms and keep learning with human learning. You know, we can't just trust the machine to keep running. We have to get in real inputs, real data, and kind of layer it. I mean, it's not good by itself. <laughs> like it has to be layered with multiple tools, multiple information to really be successful. And it has to keep being revised because it's constantly changing. So it's a hype word, but it is important. And we just need to learn how to be more effective with it. Yeah. And my observation is that consumer behavior has changed during the pandemic. Oh. It's not going to shift. If I can get something online, there's no way I'm going to walk down to the corner and buy it anymore. Right. Right. So that's right. changed. And I think I'm curious about your observations, Leisha, about this continuing battle between fraud and friction, right? The fraud guru Aviva Lighten at Gartner, she always has the saying, don't treat your good customers like criminals. Right. Right. So in your experience, can you think of a good example in any one of your prior roles or current role where you've had to tackle that balance between fraud and friction and made some good strategic decisions around making risk based assessments and allowing more people in or making yeah. more fraud decisions with confidence. Any good stories, yeah. anecdotes yeah. come to mind? Yeah. So I was working at a retail e-commerce that was really under attack by automation. And essentially, we just wanted to stop the bad actors. And we didn't want to have every customer do a CAPTCHA, do a two-time, one-time passcode, and, you know, it's a lot. And so essentially what we did was like a risk-based system to say, okay, we have enough information on this customer about, are they from a known IP? What risk do they have a card on file? Are they updating that card information? Like what's behaviors that seem risky? And then we had essentially a red, yellow, green factor. So if they were green and things look normal to their regular behavior, let them go. If it was yellow, maybe you give them one attempt to just validate their credential, maybe it's like a CAPTCHA. And then the people in extreme, and we'll say less than 5%, you stop, right? So you try not to prevent all your good people from shopping, just the ones that you believe are the highest risk. And then the ones that you do want to challenge, you essentially make it an easy challenge, you know, not like, what was your dog's name in third grade? Those questions that people can't ever remember. Exactly. Uh, they're yeah, so annoying. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So ridiculous. Well, all right, good. So I think that that friction and fraud battle continues, right? And it's really a global. Now, we've both been engaged with the Merchant Risk Council as one avenue. Mm -hmm. There's the mm -hmm. Merchant Advisory Group. There's other trade groups out yeah. there where people can meet other professionals and learn. Have you seen advancements in training or in this kind of community that's evolved? What have you found helpful? as your career has progressed? You know, I think before it was just kind of the MRC conference where all the risk and fraud people talk about fraud, but you'll see what I've seen over time is that it's being talked about everywhere. 
Money 2020 or any payments conference to see how intertwined these two use cases are. And so now there's a broader community talking about it. It's not people who like this is just their day job. You know, there's people who are trying to build checkout flows that need to understand this. There's people who are trying to build login flows. And, you know, there's all these type of people, particularly in product, who are designing these products that are more engaged in this conversation. And so I think that's good. And I think it's something that's really at the forefront of people's minds. You know, I work for PayPal and people know it as a payments company, but we're really a fraud company. I mean, you know, we really have a massive fraud team and we protect people's payments, which is why people trust us with these wallets, right? And so it's a big part of what we do. It's something that people wouldn't say, oh, you're a fraud company, but really... We can hang with the best of them because we built this whole infrastructure to mitigate these risks. And because consumers wanted another layer of protection between themselves and someone taking their credit card, it became really popular. So I do think we have these kind of use cases where this is really at the forefront, even if people may not realize it, but you wonder like, this is why I trust this company a little more than this trust, this company. There is something there about it. I think it is mainstream even though it's probably not the sexy topic in the room, yeah. it's definitely yeah, important. For sure. I'm not sure if you had heard, but we're launching the Merchant Risk Council here in Asia Pacific. There's a real need for community, for people to be able to ask questions safely, because there's just so many people that are new to fraud prevention, right? right. I'm looking back at your career. You were in IT. Talk about that progression. It's a comfortable place. You chose to get in an uncomfortable place and learn new things, get into product, get into fraud prevention. What was the trigger for you and what drew you to get deeper into fraud and payments? Yeah, I think that starting in IT, you get the good basic infrastructure. And I always say good tech people are always architects. Like you have to understand how things work and how they're built and read a lot of diagrams in my time to get that foundational piece. I'm always in a business that's trying to sell something and I want that product to be successful. And so that's the lure to kind of understanding this. And as I started my career in money movement, I started with doing bill pay, then I did transfers, then I went to credit card, and then I went to digital wallets. This conversation became more important How do we protect consumers? How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect credit cards? How do we, in different forms of how the payment type evolved. And so I do think that it is really important to evolve as we all have evolved. You know, a few years ago, like 1% of people were using digital wallets, right? And now you have COVID. and The uptick is amazing, you know, and you think about the shift in behavior. So we have to keep innovating and evolving to stay in tune with what society is demanding of us. I remember sometimes you think about Apple Pay, and it was maybe ahead of its time. The technology was there, but the behavior wasn't there. And now you have a place where you have behavior and technology are reuniting, and it's a beautiful thing. So I think you just have to take some chances and some risk to get ahead of the game. Yeah, it's a great story. So now let's get to your latest passion. And anybody that's connected with Leisha Bell on LinkedIn, you're going to know that she is outspoken and I love it. And you have your own VC firm, BLX, Black and Latinx Mm -hmm. VC firm. Yep. Well, let's back up a little bit. I'm a white straight guy. I work in tech 
Um, <laughs> I, I have experienced advantages my entire life that I haven't even noticed. As a woman, you have been a minority in many of these roles. And as someone with the complexion that you have, yes. you've also been a minority in this way. And again, let's talk about the motivation to create BLX. And then let's talk about what's giving you hope in this right. regard. Right. So, Tom, thank you for divesting your privilege and sharing the stage with me. I really appreciate that. That's important. And I'm a first-gen college student. I'm Black. I'm a woman. And I wanted to go into tech during the dot-com boom of the early 2000s. And I didn't know anybody who looked like me who did that. And I moved to San Francisco Bay Area and worked in tech, been there 20 years. And I can say the same thing today. There's really nobody who looks like me who's done what I've done. If you find another Black woman who's in AI, product management, tech, digital money movement, give them my number. Tell them to call me. I I definitely will. I'm going to start looking. (laughs) Please. But essentially, this kind of underrepresentation has not evolved. And so being around venture capitalists and the startup economy, it's like, okay, how do I get involved? So soon I was able to become a accredited investor and reinvest in companies. I was like, this is the way to move the needle. We got to move the investment to people of color and the folks who are underrepresented so that there can be some representation because essentially I'm the 1%, less than 1% representation in tech companies that is black or Latinx and particularly add women on top of that. And it gets even worse. (laughs) And so, you know, we got to change. We got to change. In the tech space, what's giving you hope, Lisha? I mean, you've yeah. got your own firm. You're yeah. raising awareness in this space. Are there investments right. happening? Are you seeing folks in power waking up to how much more powerful they could be if they divert resources to leaders that you're highlighting? Yeah, Tom. I think last year's summer of unrest in the U.S. and also highlighting this is a global problem against Black people worldwide is that It created a new level of, I think, humanity for all of us who watch a man die on video. And I think Mm -hmm. it's captured the hearts of people. And I am encouraged. So I work for PayPal. And when this happened, I went to my leadership team and said, we have to stand in. Like, this is not the time to be silent. We need to take a stand. And we have to really execute a plan with that. And so I'm extremely proud PayPal announced a $535 million commitment to Black Lives, which is unheard of. And I was proud of that because the tech industry produces more millionaires and billionaires Mm -hmm. um, than any other place. It's a place where people build wealth and create wealth. And we have to extend that opportunity. There would be less crime in the streets (laughs) if people all had the same access, you know? And, and as a fellow first-generation college graduate, you don't know what you don't know. No one you know has ever had access to the tech industry or gotten VC funding. The reality is the path to that is paved with people whose parents did it, whose buddies did it, whose right. you know, right. fraternity or sorority colleagues right. did it. And so there has to be a change in the way that the path is created in order for new people to have access, right? So thank you for that work. That's really important work in bringing the visibility. Right. And Tom, you're leading the way, right? Partially, it's like people sharing their privilege, allowing me to stand on stage with you because you have access to people 
that I don't. And there's people listening like, gosh, I didn't know. I don't know who this woman is. Maybe mm-hmm. I should, you know, and I think that's sharing the limelight and Tom, it doesn't hurt you to do that. Right. It's like, I'm like divesting no. privilege doesn't hurt. <laughs> it's no. fun. It's easy. It doesn't cost you a thing. You know, it's like there's <laughs> things that are easy. For, for sure. <laughs> Well, and honestly, I mean, I think without getting too high up onto my soapbox, one of the things that has been disturbing, and I think that we can um, help affect by conversations like this, Leisha, is that mm-hmm. helping others doesn't diminish us. It makes right. us all better. And it's not, uh, I'm not helping you with this conversation. I'm enriching myself by having this conversation. <laughs> and our tech products, our innovation are going to be richer, and we're going to have a more robust tech scene if we make access more broadly available. So I'm very excited for your work and I will continue to be a fan and continue to help share your posts. Leisha, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you're a global leader interested in speaking with us on a future episode, please email podcast at akata.com. That's it for today. Until next time. Take care.